good to be together as a family. Um, that's one of the great things about being a church, is that we're not just a collection of strangers who meets together to, to worship the Lord once a week. We're family. We, we care about each other. We love each other, and we, and we live life together. And, and we were really reminded and challenged in our men's Sunday school class this morning that means being authentic with each other. Um, sometimes we put on these, these veils or masks where we pretend as though everything's going great all the time when the truth is we need help, we need support. And part of that is, uh, as a church family, to be authentic with each other. And, and yeah, my son is not always perfectly behaved, so that's part of me being authentic with you this morning. And of course, I'll talk to him after church, right? Look out. <laughs> but uh, let's pray together as we prepare to hear from God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning we are uh, already reminded many times through the songs, through your word, that because you are our Father and we are adopted as your children into your family, that we have nothing to fear. Uh, Thank you that it is you who stills our fears with the promise, not that you'll make everything go away, not every problem or challenge, but that instead you still it with, I will be with you. Just as you are with Joseph, you will be with us. And thank you, Lord, that as your children, we come together as family and we help bear each other's burdens. We lift each other up in encouragement and in prayer, whatever we're struggling with. As your word says, when one one part mourns, we all mourn together. And when one part rejoices, we all rejoice together. And so thank you that we can do that here as a family in this church. Thank you this morning, Lord, for each one who's here and that your word... um, is intended for each one, perhaps in a different way, but I pray, Lord, that you would speak to each one individually, just as you see fit. Uh, Thank you for the word you've laid on my heart. Uh, Please give me the boldness to speak clearly, Lord, and may the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Begin this morning with a story that after going on a diet, A woman was beginning to feel very good about herself. She was beginning to see some real progress. And so especially she hit a milestone when she was able to fit into a pair of jeans that she believed she had outgrown long ago. And so one day she ran downstairs saying, look, look, saying to her husband who was sitting on the couch, I can wear my old jeans again. I finally fit in. And her husband looked over and stared for quite a long time, obviously struggling with knowing exactly what to say, but finally he just spit it out. Honey, I love you, but those are my jeans. (laughs) Sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes the truth hurts. And in the aftermath of that story, I'm not quite sure who it hurt more. The wife or the husband, but I digress. See, no matter how hard it is to hear sometimes, the truth is what we all desperately need. We all need to hear the truth. And especially when we are erring from the truth or deviating from the truth or perhaps have never heard the truth, it can be shocking, but it's still what we need to hear. And this is all the more true today because I believe that we are living in the days that the Apostle Paul described back in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. He said this, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. 
They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now, of course, this has happened in various ways through all generations since the Apostle Paul, but we can clearly see in our time the division between those holding to the truth, steadfast, holding to the truth of God's word, and those giving in to their own desires and accumulating around them those who are saying what they want to hear. And we see this division in our world growing ever stronger between those who hold to the truth of God and those going with whatever fad the world is throwing its way. And the church nor the Christian is immune from these things, which is why now more than ever, we need to hear, understand, and hold fast to the truth. Because unless we are firmly anchored to the truth of God's word and living in a daily relationship with Jesus Christ, we too can easily be carried away by our desires and by the currents of the world around us. And so in this series, we're going to focus in on some of the hot-button issues that we face today. And the first I've entitled is, How to Fall Away from the Faith. Or rather, or better, How to Not Fall Away from the Faith. Now, in case you're wondering how this may apply to you, you're here in church this morning. Well, the first thing I want to say at the very outset is that everyone needs to guard their faith. No matter how long you've walked with the Lord, no matter how many years you have served him, we all need to guard our faith. We need to guard our hearts. And if if that's where you are today, consider this just a checklist. But if you're in a place where you're struggling in your faith, consider this as well an encouragement to listen to what God's word says to you. In John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, we read this account of Jesus in a dialogue with the Jews. And we read this beginning in verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so here, Jesus plainly states that it is only by believing and holding on to his teaching that we can truly be his disciple. And when we're truly his disciple, we know the truth and we live in the freedom of that truth. We're, we're not enslaved, we're in freedom because we are in the truth. But the inverse is also true, that if we do not hold fast to Jesus' teaching, then we cannot truly be his disciple. The truth is replaced by lies, and our freedom is replaced by bondage. Now, it's important to recognize the context of Jesus' words. Here he is speaking to brand new Jewish believers. In fact, in the previous verse, in verse 30, we read this interesting statement. It says that even as he spoke, many believed in him. So here we see Jesus is teaching, he's preaching, and people are believing. They're coming to faith. And these are the same ones that he instructs to hold fast to his teaching. And yet, incredibly, If we skip ahead in the same chapter, by the very end of this account, we find that the Jews have become so furious with what Jesus continued to teach, some very hard truths, that by the end of the chapter, verse 59, it concludes like this. And you can't even make this up. This is exactly what it says. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So here we see in the span of mere hours, within certainly the same day, we see people 
who have first believed in Jesus. They've, they've stepped through the threshold of initial faith. But then in a very short span of time, they have rejected him because he spoke hard truths. And finally, they become so angry, so infuriated that they actually want to stone him to death. Now, I could be wrong, but to my knowledge, this is the fastest and most extreme case of coming to faith and then falling away from the faith ever recorded in history. But while the timeline is highly unusual, people falling away from the faith sadly is not. Many more examples of this are given throughout Scripture. One term that became synonymous with those who fall away from the faith is backslidden. The term backslid was popularized in the 1600s by John Bunyan in his famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. If you've read the story Pilgrim's Progress, you may recall the principal characters of Christian and hopeful are on their pilgrimage to the celestial city, which of course represents heaven. While on the journey, they begin to discuss an individual by the name of Temporary. Temporary, like Christian and hopeful, had started out on the pilgrimage, but along the way he had fallen by the wayside, or as Bunyan worded it, he had backslid. And that term was picked up by the church in early America, and it became a stock phrase. It referred to those once faithful individuals who had lost interest in their Christian pilgrimage and had fallen away, fallen along the wayside from living the life of faith. Now, of course, this subject is always sensitive. It is sensitive because of the simple reason that in any given church, in any given family, almost everyone knows someone close to them who has backslidden. Someone who who once made a clear profession of faith in Jesus Christ, who held fast to his teaching and lived the life of a true disciple, but are now living contrary to the faith and teaching of the Lord they once professed. In regards to these people and situations, it is fitting for us to be reminded that God has not put us in the position of judgment in regards to the salvation of their souls. That is his realm, and we must leave that with him. Our job is to lovingly speak truth. Our job is to pray for and urge and and hope for the day of their repentance and return to the Lord. And we're going to look more at that in a future sermon. But today we're going to focus in on this question. Why do people fall away from the faith? Why does it happen? Why do people fall away? Well, of course, there are as many reasons as people. We could go on and on listing all of the circumstances and scenarios in play. But there are some broad categories that I think we can identify this morning. Four of them, in fact. And I'm going to lay them out for you. False assumptions, wrong priorities, unrepentant sin, and spiritual warfare. We'll go through them in order. So the first answer to the question, why do people fall away from the faith? False assumptions. Some people begin following Christ with a false assumption about what being a Christian really means. One of the most prevalent of these is that they think becoming a Christian means that life will just be easy all the time, that you'll be spared from all of life's trials, and that God will instantly take care of all of your problems. But in stark contrast to that thinking, Jesus told anyone considering following him to count the cost at the beginning. He gave a couple of analogies of someone beginning to build a tower, saying, would you not figure out if you have the means to complete the tower before you begin? 
Or another analogy of, of a king going to war. Wouldn't he act, actually see how many troops he has if he can win the war before heading out on his mission? And so count the cost at the very beginning is what Jesus said. But how exactly do we do that? In a mailbag question with Pastor John Piper, one lady named Sally wrote in to him and asked this question. How do, we co- how do we count the cost in advance when we do not know what cost will be exacted from us in the end? And Pastor Piper gave this, I thought, excellent reply. This is what he said. The answer is that Jesus requires up front a commitment to the highest possible cost. Got that, Sally? He requires commitment to the highest possible cost. And nothing later is going to surprise you then because you've already totally sold out to the highest, most excessive cost. Think of it another way. When someone signs up for the infantry and they get sent off to war on behalf of their country and they return home from that war missing limbs... You will rarely, if ever, hear that soldier complain about the tremendous personal cost they paid in serving their country. Why? Because the moment they signed up, they understood that they were putting their very lives on the line. And so to lose a limb is still less than their lives. Because chances are that same soldier knows friends who didn't come home at all. And in the same way, when we sign up to follow Jesus, we need to understand that just as he willingly paid the highest, most excessive cost by giving his life for us on the cross, we now willingly give our lives to him in return. They no longer belong to us, but to our master. So therefore, when self-sacrifice and perseverance are required, when dying to selfish pursuits and pleasures is demanded, when we are opposed by people hostile to God, and when we are inevitably spiritually tempted and attacked by Satan, we do not run. We do not give up. We do not give in. Because we have already counted the highest, most excessive cost of our very lives at the beginning. So therefore, no trial, no matter how hard, can overcome us. Because it's still less than our lives whatever we face. So don't be deceived by the false assumption that the Christian life is a walk in the park. Jesus says, count the cost at the beginning and then rely on the Lord's strength because he promises he will be with us every step of the way, no matter what. There will be a way of escape for every temptation if we look for it. His strength will be made perfect in our weakness and therefore we must rely on him. But recognize that it's not always easy. The path, Jesus says, is narrow. But it is the pathway to life. And so we need to persevere. And we need to start out with a clear view of what it means to live the Christian life. The second reason, having wrong priorities. Many people fall away from the faith simply from having wrong priorities. I now hold up for your consideration the man by the name of Demas. He was referenced in our scripture reading this morning. You may have wondered why I forced Jamie to read through all those difficult names, but that was the reason. Because all scripture is God-breathed and useful. And so this is a useful little tidbit in scripture that most people won't have picked out on. And yet, Demas is mentioned three times in the New Testament. 
Only three times, all of them in Paul's letters. The first instance recorded is in the book, the tiny book of Philemon and verse 24. There's only one chapter in Philemon in case you're wondering. In verse 24 of Paul's letter to Philemon, Paul introduces Demas by saying this. Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. So at this moment, we see that Demas is first introduced as someone held in high esteem, someone as equal with Luke and named as my fellow worker. He's even mentioned before Luke, almost in a place of prominence, and both are praised by Paul as fellow workers, someone to be held in high esteem. It is evident that at this point, Demas is faithfully following and serving the Lord. The second time Demas is mentioned is in the book of Colossians, chapter 4 and verse 14. And now Paul writes a greeting, but notice the difference. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas send greetings. Something seems to have changed. It's subtle, but the change is there. Unlike the first time, here, Luke is mentioned first rather than Demas. Not only that, you'll notice that there are words of praise for Luke, the beloved physician. But Demas is mentioned now only by name. Apparently, he is beginning to slow down. Finally, in Paul's second letter to Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, which Jamie read for us earlier, he writes this final entrance about his once beloved fellow fellow worker, servant of the Lord. He writes these words, Demas deserted me because he loved this present age. In three verses, in not a lot of words, you have the story of a man's life. What started out with so much promise ended in desertion. Even a beloved co-worker of the Apostle Paul was not immune from falling away. Why? Paul gives the reason. Because he loved this present age. Now, to love this present age meant that he loved the temporary things that the world offered him more than the spiritual and eternal rewards that the Lord had for him. Somewhere between Paul's first mention of Demas and the last, his priorities had flipped. They'd flipped from love for the Lord to love for the world. But notice it didn't happen all at once. It happened gradually. It's likely that Demas didn't even initially realize what was happening. And the exact same thing can still happen today. It is sad but true that over the 57 years of this church's history, there have been those who have stood right here where I'm standing today and made a clear profession of faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, but have since backslidden and fallen away from the Lord and his church. And going back to Demas, I suspect that Demas never planned to desert Paul when they first headed out together. He never planned to fall away, but little by little, he began to love the things of the world more than he loved Jesus, more than he loved spreading the gospel. And though he never intended to, though he never set out with the purpose of deserting Paul and and forsaking the Lord, in the end, it happened. And he eventually just quit. No one is immune. I don't believe that anyone who has ever made their confession of faith in front of this assembly or any assembly planned to go back on it later. And yet it still happens. 
Often it's because, like Demas, somewhere along the way, their, their priorities got flipped. And nurturing one's spiritual life through devotions, through Bible study, through prayer, through Christian fellowship, began to take a back seat to other pursuits, other desires. Increasingly, people in this case will resort to excuses as to why they can no longer serve or even come to church. It's an indication of a dwindling spiritual life when hobbies, sports, jobs, sleep, or even family begin crowding the Lord increasingly out of one's life. And the road of backsliding is paved with excuses. And left uncorrected, it will cripple the Christian life. And left to run its course, it will inevitably end up like Demas. He set out with good intentions. He never planned to quit, but one day he just up and did. And it's a universal truth that all living things can die from neglect. Whether a plant in a garden, a friendship, a marriage, or one's daily walk with the Lord Jesus, neglect is dangerous and can be deadly. You know, I have never personally known an individual who just woke up one morning and announced, Today I will not be a Christian. Today I will turn my back on God. Today I will turn my back on the teachings of the Bible. Today I will turn my back on the church. I have yet to meet that person who left the faith in that manner. But I have known people who slowly oozed out of a once bright faith, once vibrant faith, but just little by little oozed their way out of the faith by wrong priorities and neglect. I've met people like that. I know people like that. I have wept for people like that. Let me ask you, what are your priorities today? I ask this out of a heart of love. What are your priorities today? Is nurturing your spiritual life and relationship with the Lord at the top of your priorities Or is it somewhere else? Is it somewhere lower? Because if it is, let me just beg you. Let me encourage you. Let me exhort you. Guard your heart. Guard your faith. Because let me tell you. Let me me just ask you. What would you give in exchange for your faith? What, What would you put on the ledger to say this would be worth it? If my faith were to be removed from me, I'd be okay with that for this. Is there anything? And if the answer is no, then guard your faith by setting your priorities with the Lord Jesus in first place and keeping them there and walking every day of your life with every intention and desire to say, Lord Jesus, you are first place in my priorities. And my time and my day and how I live and breathe and think and act are all going to come underneath you in number one, in first place. Set your priorities. Guard your faith and your heart from falling away. The third category, the obvious one, I probably should have put it in number one, but I put it here. Unrepentant sin. This category is fairly obvious, and I just want to be very crystal clear at the beginning. We are saved from our sins not by our works, but by the free gift of grace through Jesus Christ. So when I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about earning salvation. I'm talking about once we are saved, 
we are to make it now our life's aim to live in the manner, to live in the way that is pleasing to God by obeying his teaching in our daily lives. This is the overflow. This is the outworking of our gift of salvation. Of course, we all fall short many times over, but when we do, when we do, the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer, together with the work of God's word, convicts us of that sin. And when we feel that conviction, we know we have fallen short of God's standard. We have sinned. From that conviction, we confess our sin. We ask for the Lord's forgiveness, and he freely gives it to us once more. And so after having done that, we have repented, which means turning away from it. We move on, and we move forward. But once a Christian becomes aware of a sin, but refuses to turn away from it, but persists in it, it grieves the Holy Spirit within them. And this results in a battle, an inner turmoil, a struggle. And this can go on in some cases for years, where there is a a wrestling with sin that you just cannot let go of, and it's there. And this, this war will go on, but if you continue willfully in something that you know is sin, and this, this war is going on, the struggle continues, it will inevitably end in only one of two ways. Either they will eventually yield to the conviction of the Spirit, repent and return to the Lord, or finally they will quench the Spirit. They will harden their hearts and eventually fall away. There is simply no middle option. And so if today you know, you recognize that there is an unrepented sin in your life, recognize the danger and deal with it right now. There is no such thing as harmless sin. It is all poison to the mind, to the heart, and to the soul. There's a story of a man living in a forested area who, after a long journey away from home, came back to his house to discover that his house had just been overrun with mice. They were everywhere. They were coming out of the walls. Far too many to exterminate with only traps. No, he needed something far more aggressive. And so he bought a few boxes of decon poison. He distributed them throughout the house, including one box of poison underneath his bed. And that night he went to sleep and he couldn't believe his ears. Below him he could hear a feeding frenzy as mice were literally coming out of the woodwork to feast. And in the morning, he checked the box and he found it licked clean. He knew, however, that the poison was designed to work on a delayed reaction. But just to make sure, he placed another box of poison underneath his bed. And again that night, he heard the mice descend to feast a second time. And so, just to make sure, he placed another box the third night. But that night, all was quiet. Though the the reaction was delayed, what the mice had seen only as a tasty midnight snack, it had done its deadly work. And in the same way, just because we don't always immediately see the consequences of sin, we think it's no big deal. And so we return again, and we return again, and we return again. But therein lies the trap. There is simply a delayed reaction. So don't be deceived. All sin leads to death. So keep a short account with the Lord and with others. Guard your heart and keep it soft to the Spirit by confessing and repenting of all sin, great or small, early and often as you must. 
And recognize that all unrepentant sin is poison to your faith. So don't dabble with it. Don't think it's harmless. Don't think, ah, it's just a small thing. Deal with it. Deal with it right now. The sooner, the better. And this leads us to our final category as to why people fall away from the faith. And this is giving in to spiritual attack. The Bible informs us crystal clear that the devil goes about as a roaring lion looking for those he can devour. It calls him many names, including an enemy of the saints. An enemy of the saints, meaning enemy of believers of Jesus Christ. Which means that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are his enemy, and you are firmly in his sights. Make no mistake, Satan is not your friend. He hates your Lord. He hates you. And he wants nothing more than to devour and destroy not only you and your faith, but your friends, your family, and your church. But though we already know this, what we so often forget is that he is devious and his schemes are clever. He has tactics that we can only dream of. He is clever. He's been doing this for millennia, for ages. There is nothing in our human behavior that surprises him. He knows how we think. He knows our behaviors. He knows our weaknesses. And he preys upon them deliberately, intentionally, deviously. And this is why the Apostle Paul instructs us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 to 13, a famous passage. But we need to hear it again. Because you need to recognize if we go into this battleground on our own, with our own strength, with our own wits, we are outmatched hopelessly. We do not stand a chance against the enemy on our own, and that's why we need to heed this word. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. I want to highlight something for you just to notice. It does not say, so that if the day of evil comes but rather so that when the day of evil comes. Spiritual attack and warfare is inevitable, so we should not be surprised by it. And also, why the regular disciplines of putting on the armor of God through the word, through prayer, through church, through fellowship, through exercising our faith, through service, all of these things are so vital. And in verse 16, Paul adds this. In addition to all of this, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And I love this. I love this because it is our faith, the very thing that Satan wants to rob us of, it is our faith that is the key to defeating his attacks. I love that. It is through faith that we have victory. One man who learned this truth many times over was named John Henry Yates. His parents had immigrated to New York State from England, and John was born in Batavia, New York, in 1837. His dad was a shoemaker and his mom a schoolteacher. On several occasions, John gave his parents reason for grave alarm. At age seven, on election day, he fell from a high set of stone steps in a hotel. He tumbled down all the way into the cellar, fracturing his skull along the way. It wasn't certain he would come to, as he was unconscious for days. 
He finally came to, and he kept the broad scar as a lifelong souvenir of the incident. Then, at age 10, when his family was traveling by ship, a storm struck so powerfully that young John was thrown across the deck, breaking his leg. Then, at age 16, John brought down the curtain on a school play when, during a dramatic scene, he accidentally stumbled and fell on an open, double-edged knife, piercing his right lung. And for three weeks, his life hung by a thread. However, he survived it all. And by age 18, his mother had persuaded him to begin writing poetry. Before long, his poems, songs, and hymns were being recited and sung across America. And soon John followed the Lord's call into ministry. And beginning in his late teens, he served as a lay preacher in the Methodist Church. For many years, he traveled through western New York State, preaching in churches of all denominations and sharing his faith in Jesus Christ. That faith was again severely tested in February of 1878 when his wife and two sons all died in the span of one week from an outbreak of diphtheria. He eventually remarried and kept going in the ministry. Then in 1891, Yeats wrote what would become his most beloved and enduring hymn. He passed away on September 5th, 1900, and on his gravestone is inscribed the words of that hymn. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. My friends, today, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have victory. But without faith, we have nothing. So guard yourself, guard your faith from falling away by counting the cost up front, setting your priorities correctly, repenting of sin quickly, early and often, and preparing for spiritual battle daily by putting on the armor of God and keeping the shield of faith always at the ready. For our faith gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that by your word we have all of the truth we need for life, for salvation, and for how to live it out, Lord, in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you from this day until the day we see you face to face in glory. And Lord, our hearts grieve for those we know and love who have fallen away from that faith. And we pray, Lord, according to your word and your will, that you, the good shepherd, would continue to seek them out, to call them by name, that they would return to you and into your fold and into your care. And Father, today we also pray that we would guard our hearts from falling away, not not be prideful or arrogant to think, oh, that could never happen to me, but that instead in humility, come before you and make sure that, that we have counted the cost at the very beginning. And that, Lord, perhaps if there's some here today who've recognized they haven't done so, that right now, even now, they would say, Lord, whatever the cost, I count it willingly, gladly to follow you. And that, Lord, that we would put our priorities in correct order. That if we have put anything and everything above you, Lord, I pray that we would reorder that beginning today. That we would say, Jesus, you're in first place. Guarding my spiritual life and my faith is of highest priority, not somewhere down the rung. And that in this way, we would be built up and our lives would reflect your glory. And that, Lord, if there's sin, if even now someone is feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit with something where they haven't let go of it, 
I pray, Lord, that right now you would give them the grace and the strength to say, Lord Jesus, I confess, I repent, and I turn away from this sin in my life. Give me your grace and your forgiveness once more, and grant me the strength to walk free in your name. And finally, Lord, in the struggle that we all face day in, day out in the spiritual realm as the enemy seeks to wear us down through attacks, Lord, help us to remember to put on the armor, to fight the battle not in our own wits or strength, but in yours and the equipping you give each one of us through your word, through prayer, and by your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would build each one of us up in this way, that each one of us would be found firm in the faith, Lord, on the day that you return or call us home. For this is your will in Christ Jesus for each one of us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.